there in James chapter 3. Uh, looking at this idea of living in a fallen world, living in a world that's hard and it's full of hostility and full of uncertainty, and how does God call us to live faithfully in that, in that world? And so tonight in James chapter 3, uh, we're getting into a passage that's kind of full of just wisdom. James is a book that's kind of like, if you've ever read Proverbs in the Old Testament, Proverbs is the book of wisdom. James is like the New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. Lots of wisdom of how to live life. So let's jump in. I'm going to read James chapter 3. It's on that blue page. I uh, hope you got one as you came in. James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let me pray for us. Our God, we come to you tonight with our Bibles open and our hearts open and our ears ready to hear what you would have us know and understand and believe. And we ask that even as a result of reading your word and looking to you tonight, that Jesus, you will be more believable and more beautiful to us even tonight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, you can see as we read through those 12 verses that this is a, a chapter full of wisdom, uh, wisdom related to our speech, to our words, or the way that it summarizes the tongue, how we speak. Uh, words are powerful. Uh, you can tell often the way we believe, what we believe about something is by how many little idioms or sayings that we have regarding that topic. And in, I just kind of thought through and wrote down a few things that I've heard over the years regarding our speech. Like, for instance, have you ever had somebody tell you, and maybe you're in elementary school, you have two ears and one mouth. You should listen twice as much as you speak. Kind of a warning, right? Like, listen, stop talking and listen. Uh, it's better to be thought a fool. You have to think about this one, so be careful before you say something. It's better to be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. It's better for somebody to think you're a fool than to speak and remove all doubt that you actually are a fool. So just be quiet. Uh, in the World War II era, you may have heard this one, but this is actually going back to World War II. Loose lips sink ships. And this was the idea in the World War II era that like as Americans, you may have heard something that the military was doing. And if you're talking about it, it might actually cost the war. Loose lips sink ships. And so they had posters posted all over the country with that emblazoned on it. Stop talking. Uh, there's a Chinese proverb that says, a word gone to the mouth goes to the mountain. 
A word gone to the mouth goes to the mountain. Whatever you say, once it's out of your mouth, it's out there. Or how about this one from, uh, I was told this is from Argentina. I'll probably be better off saying, probably Latin American. The tongue that belongs to a fake friend is sharper than a knife. The tongue that belongs to a fake friend is sharper than a knife. What are we getting at? It's this idea that words are powerful. Uh, Words are something that are powerful and they actually can, if we're not aware, can go beyond our control that once it's been said, it's gone and it's out there. So here's what I want you to see tonight is that this this big idea that we're going to look at tonight is that because words have such enormous power to build up or to destroy, God calls us to guard our words, to guard our tongue in all situations. Because words have such power to build up or to destroy, we need to guard our words in all situations. We've actually already seen in the book of James in chapter 1 that James even himself said, everyone should be quick to hear and slow to speak. But if you're thinking about this idea of like words and words that have power and words that have such great meaning and that we need to be careful with the ways in which we speak, the first thing I want you to see, and this is probably the most important thing for you to understand before we get into the, like the, the meat of James chapter 1, is that words carry such enormous power because they reflect our heart. Words carry such enormous power because they reflect our heart. As you speak, it's not just words that are coming out of your mouth. It's reflecting something about who you are and what you believe and what you were truly thinking. So in other words, our words are a character issue. Our words are a character issue, which means it's a gospel issue. Our words are a character issue, which means that at the very core of this understanding is that this touches on the fundamental realities of what we believe about the Bible, about who God is, and what Jesus says about himself. You see, it's not so much that the words are the issue, but it's our heart that's the issue. Look at the way this passage ends in verses 11 and 12. James says in 11 and 12, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Obviously, no. The answer is no. If you go to a spring and you're getting salt water out of it, what did you know? Like that's a salt spring. And no matter how long you stay there, it's not all of a sudden going to turn fresh because it's either one or the other. The water that's coming out of it is telling you something about the character of that spring. Or he gives another illustration. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? No. If you're getting figs off this tree, guess what kind of tree it is? It's a fig tree. And if you're getting olives, it's not a fig tree. Like It's producing fruit that's keeping in line with the character of that tree. And I think at this point, James himself is really just reiterating what he would have heard from Jesus himself when Jesus was teaching his people. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For, listen to this, For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or as another translation says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So like as the words are coming out of your mouth, at some level, it's overflowing from your heart. And so right now, at that point, it's worth pausing and saying, you can see why our words, what we say, our speech, it's a character issue. 
because it's telling us something about our heart, about our character, and about who we are. Which means this. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, you like thought through some of the, the verses that we've just read that we're going to like dive into in a minute. If you find yourself convicted over your speech over the last couple days, the last couple weeks, the last couple months, whatever the case may be, the way that you talk about people, the way that you've talked about your parents, the way that you've talked to your friends. Uh, by the way, I think if you're listening, you should be convicted. I, I mean, I know I am <laughs> as I've thought through this. Like this is a, an incredibly convicting passage. You really have a couple of options if you're not careful. The one option is to go the route of saying like, well, I'm just not going to think about it. I just call it like it is. I'm just telling the truth. Somebody's got to say it. And you kind of excuse yourself and let yourself off the hook for what you've said. Uh, the other option is to try to, keep, to try to keep it all like perfectly and so that you can kind of have this sense of pride and, uh, and essentially kind of arrogance of like, well, I don't make mistakes with what I say. And really what James would have us understand, what Jesus would have us understand is to say, if, if you're convicted at this point, if you're convicted at the point of the way your speech reflects your heart, and by the way, this is true of any other category, the best thing to do is to repent before God and to come to him for the, for the hope and the help and the forgiveness that only Jesus can provide. See, because even though a salt spring doesn't produce fresh water, the promise of the gospel is that through Christ, he does change our hearts, that he gives life where there once was death, that he changes hearts that were once bitter and makes them soft, that he gives us a new hope and a new meaning and a new creation to the point that the fruit that's produced, as the New Testament says, is that our speech becomes what's described as full of grace, seasoned with salt, enjoyable, life-giving for those who come into our presence. So if you're convicted by your speech, my encouragement to you is to take that conviction and turn it into a prayer before God and confess your sin, confess the places where you've fallen short and ask God, will you forgive me? And will you change my heart? And will you change the way in which I speak? Because James is clear in these verses, at some level, it's impossible for our speech uh, to ever perfectly reflect the reality of what we believe. Verse 2, he says, we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. A perfect man meaning like a complete person. You can almost see the, the emphasis that he has is like, man, we can all stumble in all these different ways. And maybe you can kind of get it to where you've got some things under control. But if he doesn't stumble in what he says, like, man, that's one of the hardest tests that comes to us. And so God would have us come to him for forgiveness and grace. And so what do we need to know? If it's true that our words are a heart issue and they reflect the reality of the gospel, here's the second thing for you to see is that our words are powerful even when they seem insignificant. Words are powerful even when they seem insignificant. I was talking to a friend this week and he was telling me about how he had, he had accepted a job, moved his family to come down to Boca Raton, uh, working for this startup company and the CEO of the startup company after he's been on the, on the job and he's been working and he's been kind of diving into a deeper level at what's going on in this company, he says, I found out he's just completely lied to me about so much about this job, about where the company was and what's really true. But it gets passed off as like, well, that's just business speak. It's just, it's just, you know, it's just business. We're not, we're not being super accurate. 
Like even though those words seem insignificant, somebody changed their whole life's structure and their whole family based on those words. I just finished reading a biography about a president uh, who was not known for, how should I say this, telling the truth. Now it's politics, right? But the author of this biography kind of passed it off as saying, well, this president, he wasn't, he was more so like trying to just create an idea. He wasn't so concerned about the truth. Like at some level, that's just a lie. Because if our words, even if they seem small, have significant and enormous power. That's why he goes through these three examples, beginning in verse three. We put a bit into the mouth of a horse so that they obey us. What is that? It's a small little piece of metal that goes in your mouth. And you can steer an entire horse just by that small little bit. Or he says, verse four, look at a ship. It's so large. It's driven by strong winds. And yet, how is it steered? It's got this little rudder in the back and the pilot can steer it whatever direction it wants to go. Or third example of he's trying to say, look at how something so small and insignificant can have outsized proportions of what it does. Verse five, how great is a forest that is set ablaze by such a small fire. That's the one that really catches my attention in my mind. You think of just a little spark can create this whole forest fire. In fact, uh, two years ago, I don't know if you guys remember reading this story. Uh, there's a couple in California who wanted to do a gender reveal, you know, like when they're, they're pregnant and they found out what the baby's going to be and they're going to do this like smoke bomb that's going to like produce either pink or blue smoke and all their family and friends are there and this is going to look great on social media, except for something went sideways and it started a fire that their little pink smoke started a, a forest fire, that the winds blew that thing and it created this fire that burned 23,000 acres of land in California, burned down five houses and 15 buildings. And that couple is facing serious, serious criminal charges for what was, they, it wasn't their intention. They weren't trying to start a fire. They were just trying to have a party. But isn't it true that our words, even if it's not what we intended to happen, has a far greater impact than what we really originally began. James is warning us to say, your words, my words, can far outweigh what we think they can do, even when they just seem so small and so insignificant. I couldn't help but like... <laughs> As I was working through this passage, I couldn't help but go back and watch the episode of The Office where Michael, if you guys ever watched The Office, where Michael discovers that Stanley is having an affair and decides to spread the rumor around The Office because it's finally the one time that Michael knows something that nobody else does. But as he spreads the rumor around The Office, he realizes that he probably shouldn't have done this. And so he starts to spread other rumors about other people in The Office so that he can try to cover his tracks, like that Oscar is the voice of the Taco Bell dog. And that Kevin has somebody inside of him, like controlling him from the inside, like a robot. And he tries to spread the rumor that he himself is a J. Crew model, but it gets like hijacked and everybody thinks Jim's the J. Crew model. But by the end of the episode, like you're like, life lessons from the office. We know it's a ridiculous show, but by the end of the show, what's happened? Like everybody is alienated and furious. And it's like a, it's a, it's a, you know, for the ridiculousness of it, it's true how quickly what seems so small and insignificant quickly grew out of control. And if you think about your own life and you think about your own friends and you think about the way in which uh, other people have either spoken about you or you've had your friends had something said about them, our words have incredible impact. They go deeper than just the seeming small insignificant words. 
It's so striking to me that even in the book of Proverbs, it warns us about the fool who is like shooting fiery arrows by insulting his neighbor and only going back and saying, I was just joking. How many times have somebody kind of had that explanation to you? I was just a joke, but it cuts so deep. Our words reflect our character. And so it's a gospel issue. But while it's true that our words can have this like outsized impact in this negative way, what I also hope that you can see in this is our third point is that the power of words actually can give life. Uh, it's not just that words are, are, are impactful in a negative sense, but our words can have deep, deep life-giving uh, implications for those around us. Whenever, anytime you read the Bible, and this is true not just for James 3, but any other passage, anytime you read the Bible and you come across a commandment, all the commandments of God carry with them both negative and positive connotations. In other words, whenever you read a Bible, a Bible like law that for, forbids a certain action, it's also true that we're called to do the opposite in fulfilling that commandment. So when the Bible says, do not murder, that doesn't just mean don't kill people. It's true, and that's good. Don't kill people. But it also has an implication of bringing life wherever you possibly can. So when you pay the electric bill of a friend or a neighbor who's in deep financial straits, at some level, it's fulfilling the, the requirements of do not murder. Why? Give life. When you buy the groceries for the single mom who's struggling, what is it doing? But it's giving life. So every commandment that has this negative side also has a positive side. Do not covet has a negative side, like don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's car, your neighbor's whatever the stuff is that your friends have, their clothes, their lifestyle. But in a positive sense, what's he calling us to do? Well, be content. Be content with what God has given you in your life. So then what about our words? When you read James 3, you can see that in James 3, there's all of this kind of like this negative side of being a warning against our words. He goes on in verse 7 and he talks about how we can take birds of uh, we can take beasts and birds and reptiles and sea creatures and we can tame them, but no one has ever tamed the, the tongue. Uh, it's like, he says, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing my brothers. These things ought not to be. Why? Because our words, if we're followers of Christ and if he's working in us to transform us, what should our words do but be a blessing to those around us and a blessing to God as well? Rather than tearing down, building up and giving life. Uh, you probably know this, but there's like several studies and there's been a lot of research that has demonstrated the positive impact that words can have on people around us. Like if you're thinking about it in a work environment or in a classroom, that when somebody gives a compliment, it's, there's all of these studies and all this research that is done of how it can transform a community and how it can transform a culture and how it can transform a work environment just by people being positive and giving compliments and encouragement and showing gratitude. What's interesting, though, Harvard did two different, two different studies that showed at both times that even though people knew that their compliments could have an incredible impact on those around them, and even though they knew that they benefited from the encouragement that others had given them, people often underestimate the impact that their words can have on others and they just stay silent. It was a deep, deep study that they did in two different occasions that they were stunned by this reality 
that when people were given the opportunity to praise a coworker or to encourage them or compliment them, they just didn't say anything. For fear that it might be awkward, it might make them feel uncomfortable, I don't know what to do with that, that we have this innate uh, sort of, I guess, ingrained reality of just staying silent when really we could bring life to those around us. Listen to these words from the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 16, says that gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Uh, gracious words are, 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 are actually healing whenever they're given to us in a genuine sense. Have you ever received a compliment and it changed the course of your day? It changed the outlook of your day by someone who just genuinely said something. And what's funny to me is so often it can even be something that's seemingly insignificant, but it just changes the course of your day. Proverbs 12, 25 says that anxiety weighs down the heart. Don't we feel that? Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. <laughs> What's a, what would be a cure for the anxious culture in which we live? Maybe it would just be a kind word. A genuine, uh, a genuine compliment or a sign of gratitude from a friend. Proverbs 15 says a person finds joy in giving an apt reply and how good is a timely word. Or Proverbs 25, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. I've never seen anybody like choose a piece of jewelry that was an apple made of gold and a setting of silver. But I think it means that it's kind of beautiful in their culture. And that's like a word that's aptly spoken. It's like fine jewelry that would lift your spirit. Is just somebody who gives a kind word at the right time in the right season. So you see, I think words are so powerful not just because they reflect who we are, but because at the very center and the core of the universe in which we live is a God who speaks. Words have power because the God of the universe is a God who speaks. In Genesis chapter 1, we discover that out of nothing, God spoke the creation into existence. His words have power to create life, to create something out of nothing. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they fell into sin and they were hiding from God, what does God do? But he comes into the scene and remember what he does? He speaks. Adam, where are you? Adam says, I was hiding because I was naked. God says, who told you that? He's speaking to him. And in the course of that interaction, he doesn't just speak words of conviction but he also gives words of life. And he promises to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one day he says, like we just sang, we will feast in the house of Zion. One day he says, I will bring my Redeemer through your seed. And to the serpent, he says, I will, he will crush your head, even though you will bruise his heel. He tells him Jesus will come one day through the line of Eve, and will utterly destroy and eradicate evil in our presence, its potentiality, so that we no longer weep, but we can feast and enjoy the very presence of God. And how does Jesus come and how is he introduced in John chapter 1? We're told in the beginning was the Word. The Word incarnate, God himself, the Word of God, puts on flesh and comes and dwells among us. That word who put on flesh would go to the cross and die a death that you and I deserve so that you and I might find life. 
And do you remember what God spoke to Jesus about Jesus in his life? This is my son with whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. The very words of the father about his son. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And so it's why you and I can wait for the day when we hear Jesus' words that he promises to those who put their trust in him as they come into his presence. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. What words do is they bring life. And they communicate ultimately the reality of who we are in God's economy and the hope that we have in Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we confess that so often our words uh, fail to give life to those around us. Father, we confess that so often our words fall short, they cut, and we're careless. And we ask that you forgive us for those places and those times and those seasons where that's been true of us. God, I know that it's been true of me. Will you enable us more and more each day uh, to be renewed in our inner spirit so that our words truly reflect the hope that we have in you and that we can look ultimately to you and to your word to give us life. We pray in Christ's name.